Chapter 9 of The Seaboard Parish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seaboard Parish by George MacDonald. Chapter 9 A Spring Chapter. More especially now in my old age, I find myself to a lingering motion bound. I would, if I might, tell a tale day by day, hour by hour, following the movement of the year in its sweet change of seasons. This may not be, but I will indulge myself now so far as to call this a spring chapter, and so pass to the summer, when my reader will see why I have called my story the Seaboard Parish. I was out one day amongst my people, and I found two precious things, one a lovely little fact, the other a lovely little primrose this was a pinched dwarfish thing for the spring was but a baby herself and so could not mother more than a brave-hearted weakling the frost lay all about it under the hedge but its rough leaves kept it just warm enough and hardly now i should never have pulled the little darling it would have seemed a kind of small sacrilege committed on the church of nature seeing she had but this one only with my sickly cub at home i felt justified in ravening like a beast of prey I even went so far in my greed as to dig up the little plant with my fingers, and bear it, leaves and all, with a lump of earth about it to keep it alive, home to my little woman, a present from the outside world which she loves so much. So I set myself to find it, for it lay in fragments in the drawers and cabinets of my memory. And before I got home I had found all the pieces and put them together, and then it was a lovely little sonnet which a friend of mine had written and allowed me to see many years before. I was in the way of writing verses myself, but I should have been proud to have written this one. I never could have done that. Yet, as far as I knew, it had never seen the light through the windows of print. It was with some difficulty that I got it all right, but I thought I had succeeded very nearly, if not absolutely, and I said it over and over till I was sure I should not spoil its music or its meaning by halting in the delivery of it. Look here, my Connie, what I have brought you, I said she held out her two white half-transparent hands took it as if it had been a human baby and looked at it lovingly till the tears came in her eyes she would have made a tender picture as she then lay with her two hands up holding the little beauty before her eyes then i said what i have already written about the mirror and repeated the sonnet to her here it is and my readers will owe me gratitude for it my friend had found the snowdrop in february and in frost Indeed, he told me that there was a tolerable sprinkling of snow upon the ground. I know not what among the grass thou art, thy nature nor thy substance, fairest flower, nor what to other eyes thou hast of power, to send thine image through them to the heart. But when I push the frosty leaves apart, and see thee hiding in thy wintry bower, thou growest up within me from that hour, and through the snow I with the spring depart. I have no words, but fragrant is the breath, pale beauty of thy second life within there is a wind that cometh for thy death but thou a life immortal dost begin where in one soul which is thy heaven shall dwell thy spirit beautiful unspeakable will you say it again papa said connie i do not quite understand it i will my dear but i will do something better as well i will go and write it out for you as soon as i have given you something else that i have brought thank you papa and please write it in your best sunday hand that i may read it quite easily i promised and repeated the poem i understand it a little better she said 
but the meaning is just like the primrose itself hidden up in its green leaves when you give it me in writing i will push them apart and find it now tell me what else you have brought me i was greatly pleased with the resemblance the child saw between the plant and the sonnet but i did not say anything in praise i only expressed satisfaction before i began my story winnie came in and sat down with us i have been to see miss aylmer this morning i said she feels the loss of her mother very much poor thing how old was she papa asked connie she was over ninety my dear but she had forgotten how much herself and her daughter could not be sure about it she was a peculiar old lady you know she once reproved me for inadvertently putting my hat on the tablecloth mr shafton she said was one of the old school he would never have done that i don't know what the world is coming to my two girls laughed at the idea of their papa being reproved for bad manners what did you say papa they asked i begged her pardon and lifted it instantly oh it's all right now my dear she said when you've taken it up again but i like good manners though i live in a cottage now had she seen better days then asked winnie she was a farmer's daughter and a farmer's widow i suppose the chief difference in her mode of life was that she lived in a cottage instead of a good-sized farmhouse but what is the story you have to tell us i'm coming to that when you have done with your questions we have done papa after talking a while during which she went bustling a little about the cottage in order to hide her feelings as i thought for she has a good deal of her mother's sense of dignity about her but i want your mother to hear the story run and fetch her winnie oh do make haste winnie said connie when ethelwyn came i went on miss aylmer was bustling a little about the cottage putting things to rights all at once she gave a cry of surprise and said here it is at last she had taken up a stuffed dress of her mother's and was holding it in one hand while with the other she drew from the pocket what do you think various guesses were hazarded no no nothing like it i know you could never guess therefore it would not be fair to keep you trying a great iron horseshoe the old woman of ninety years had in the pocket of the dress that she was wearing at the very moment when she died for her death was sudden an iron horseshoe what did it mean could her daughter explain it that she proceeded at once to do do you remember sir she said how that horseshoe used to hang on a nail over the chimney-piece i do remember having observed it there i answered for once when i took notice of it i said to your mother laughing i hope you are not afraid of witches mrs aylmer and she looked a little offended and assured me to the contrary well her daughter went on about three months ago i missed it my mother would not tell me anything about it and here it is i can hardly think she can have carried it about all that time without me finding it out but i don't know here it is anyhow perhaps when she felt death drawing nearer she took it from somewhere where she had hidden it and put it in her pocket if i had found it in time i would have put it in her coffin but why i asked do tell me the story about it if you know it i know it quite well for she told me all about it once it is the shoe of a favorite mare of my father's one he used to ride when he went courting my mother my grandfather did not like to have a young man coming about the house and so he came after the old folks were gone to bed but he had a long way to come and he rode that mare she had to go over some stones to get to the stable and my mother used to spread straw there for it was under the window of my grandfather's room that her shoes mightn't make a noise and wake him and that's one of the shoes she said holding it up to me when the mare died my mother begged my father for the one off her near forefoot where she had so often stood and patted her neck when my father was mounted to ride home again 
but it was very naughty of her wasn't it said winnie to do that without her father's knowledge i don't say it was right my dear but in looking at what is wrong we ought to look for the beginning of the wrong and possibly we might find that in this case farther back if for instance a father isn't a father we must not be too hard in blaming the child for not being a child the father's part has to come first and teach the child's part now if i might guess from what i know of the old lady in whom probably it was much softened her father was very possibly a hard unreasoning and unreasonable man such that it scarcely ever came into the daughter's head that she had anything else to do with regard to him than beware of the consequences of letting him know that she had a lover the whole thing i allow was wrong but i suspect the father was first to blame and far more to blame than the daughter and that is the more likely from the high character of the old dame and the romantic way in which she clung to the memory of the courtship a true heart only does not grow old and i have therefore no doubt that the marriage was a happy one besides i dare say it was very much the custom of the country where they were and that makes some difference well i'm sure papa you wouldn't like any of us to go and do like that said winnie assuredly not my dear i answered laughing nor have i any fear of it but shall i tell you what i think would be one of the chief things to trouble me if you did if you like papa but it sounds rather dreadful to hear such an if said winnie it would be to think how much i had failed of being such a father to you as i ought to be and as i wish to be if it should prove at all possible for you to do such a thing it's too dreadful to talk about papa said winnie and the subject was dropped she was a strange child this winnie of ours whereas most people are in danger of thinking themselves in the right or insisting that they are whether they think so or not she was always thinking herself in the wrong nay more she always expected to find herself in the wrong if the perpetrator of any mischief was inquired after she always looked into her own bosom to see whether she could not with justice aver that she was the doer of the deed i believe she felt at that moment as if she had been deceiving me already and deserved to be driven out of the house this came of an over-sensitiveness accompanied by a general dissatisfaction with herself which was not upheld by a sufficient faith in the divine sympathy or sufficient confidence of final purification she never spared herself and if she was a little severe on the younger ones sometimes no one was yet more indulgent to them she would eat all their hard crusts for them always give them the best and take the worst for herself if there was any part in the dish that she was helping that she thought nobody would like she invariably assigned it to her own share it looked like a determined self-mortification sometimes but that was not it she did not care for her own comfort enough to feel it any mortification though i observed that when her mother or i helped her to anything nice she ate it with as much relish as the youngest of the party and her sweet smile was always ready to meet the least kindness that was offered her her obedience was perfect and had been so for very many years as far as we could see indeed not since she was the merest child had there been any contest between us now of course there was no demand of obedience she was simply the best earthly friend that her father and mother had it often caused me some passing anxiety to think that her temperament as well as her devotion to her home might cause her great suffering some day but when those thoughts came i just gave her to god to take care of her mother sometimes said to her that she would make an excellent wife for a poor man she would brighten up greatly at this taking it for a compliment of the best sort and she did not forget it as the sequel will show she would choose to sit with one candle lit when there were two on the table wasting her eyes to save the candles which will you have for dinner to-day papa roast beef or boiled 
she asked me once, when her mother was too unwell to attend to the housekeeping, and when I replied that I would have whichever she liked best, the boiled beef lasts longest, I think, she said, yet she was not only as liberal and kind as any to the poor, but she was, which is rarer, and perhaps more important for the final formation of a character, carefully just to everyone with whom she had any dealings. Her sense of law was very strong. Law with her was something absolute, and not to be questioned. In her childhood there was one lady to whom for years she showed a decided aversion, and we could not understand it, for it was the most inoffensive Miss Boulderstone. When she was nearly grown up, one of us happening to allude to the fact, she volunteered an explanation. Miss Boulderstone had happened to call one day when Winnie, then between three and four, was in disgrace, in the corner, in fact. Miss Boulderstone interceded for her, and this was the whole front of her offending. I was so angry, she said, as if my papa did not know best when I ought to come out of the corner, I said to myself, and I couldn't bear her for ever so long after that. Miss Boulderstone, however, though not very interesting, was quite a favorite before she died. She left Winnie, for she and her brother were the last of their race, a death's head watch, which had been in the family she did not know how long. I think it is as old as Queen Elizabeth's time. I took it to London to a skillful man, and had it as well repaired as its age would admit of, and it has gone ever since, though not with the greatest accuracy. For what could be expected of an old death's head, the most transitory thing in creation? Winnie wears it to this day, and wouldn't part with it for the best watch in the world. I tell the reader all this about my daughter that he may be the more able to understand what will follow in due time. He will think that as yet my story has been nothing but promises. Let him only hope that I will fulfill them, and I shall be content. Mr. Boulderstone did not long outlive his sister, though the old couple, for they were rather old before they died, if indeed they were not born old, which I strongly suspect, being the last of a decaying family that had not left the land on which they were born for a great many generations, though the old people had not of what the French call sentiments one between them, they were yet capable of a stronger and, I had almost said, more romantic attachment than many couples who have married from love, for the lady's sole trouble in dying was what her brother would do without her, and from the day of her death he grew more and more dull and seemingly stupid. Nothing gave him any pleasure but having Winnie to dinner with him. I knew that it must be very dull for her, but she went often, and I never heard her complain of it, though she certainly did look fagged, not bored, observe, but fagged, showing that she had been exerting herself to meet the difficulties of the situation. When the good man died, we found that he had left all his money in my hands, in trust for the poor of the parish, to be applied in any way I thought best. This involved me in much perplexity, for nothing is more difficult than to make money useful to the poor but I was very glad of it notwithstanding. My own means were not so large as my readers may think. The property my wife brought me was much encumbered. With the help of her private fortune and the income of several years, not my income from the church, it may be as well to say, I succeeded in clearing off the encumbrances. But even then there remained much to be done, if I would be the good steward that was not to be ashamed at his lord's coming. First of all there were many cottages to be built for the laborers on the estate. If the farmers would not or could not help, I must do it, for to provide decent dwellings for them was clearly one of the divine conditions in the righteous tenure of property, whatever the human might be, for it was not for myself alone, or for myself chiefly, that this property was given to me, it was for those who lived upon it. Therefore I laid out what money I could, not only in getting all the land clearly in its right relation to its owner, 
but in doing the best I could for those attached to it who could not help themselves. And when I hint to my reader that I had some conscience in paying my curate, though as they had no children they did not require so much as I should have otherwise felt compelled to give them, he will easily see that as my family grew up I could not have so much to give away of my own as I should have liked. Therefore this trust of the good Mr. Boulderstone was the more acceptable to me. One word more ere I finish this chapter. I should not like my friends to think that I had got tired of our Christmas gatherings, because I have made no mention of one this year. It had been pretermitted for the first time because of my daughter's illness. It was much easier to give them now than when I lived at the vicarage, for there was plenty of room in the old hall. But my curate, Mr. Weir, still held a similar gathering there every Easter. Another one word more about him. Some may wonder why I have not mentioned him or my sister, especially in connection with Connie's accident. The fact was that he had taken, or rather I had given him, a long holiday. Martha had had several disappointing illnesses, and her general health had suffered so much in consequence that there was even some fear of her lungs, and a winter in the south of France had been strongly recommended. Upon this I came in with more than a recommendation, and insisted that they should go. They had started in the beginning of October, and had not returned up to the time of which I am now about to write, somewhere in the beginning of the month of April. But my sister was now almost quite well, and I was not sorry to think that I should soon have a little more leisure for such small literary pursuits as I delighted in, to my own enrichment, and consequently to the good of my parishioners and friends. End of chapter 9